Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Hey, before we get started tonight, we just wanted everyone to know that Ohio Mysteries was featured on another podcast called From the Shadows. The hosts there, Shane, Jason, and the judge, asked us to present a mystery from their neck of the woods in Bucyrus, Ohio. So we joined them to explore the unsolved murder of a well-known local businessman, John Wren. It's a very intriguing case with multiple theories. So if you want a bonus Ohio mystery this week, go check it out. Now, be sure to search From the Shadows podcast. For some reason, if you don't throw the podcast part in there, you might get directed to another From the Shadows. Um, Or you can just go to our website, ohiomysteries.com, where we've added it to our lineup. So you can just follow the link. Now, for tonight's 10-minute mystery, we've got a case out of Bel Air, Ohio. That's a speck of a village in Belmont County just about one and a half square miles. It's right along Ohio's east central border, just across the Ohio River from Wheeling, West Virginia. As small as Bel Air is, it left its mark on Ohio history. There used to be dozens of glass manufacturers in the area, leading Bel Air to once be known as Glass City. It was an era that lasted more than a century, only ending in 1984 when the last glassmaker closed its doors, though there is still a glass museum in town. In more modern times, Bel Air has made a couple of cameo appearances on the silver screen. Bel Air used to have a toll bridge that was filmed for the 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs, and its railroad viaduct showed up in a 2010 film called Unstoppable. Now, the population today is a shadow of what it once was. Bel Air was once home to 15,000 people. It has dwindled to about 4,000 now. Our story takes place in 1982 when the population was still about double that. And one of its residents was 21-year-old Leon Arthur Monser. Leon was a slight guy, five foot six inches, 145 pounds. He had shoulder length brown hair and hazel eyes. Now, Leon had a responsible side. He juggled three jobs and was a devoted father to a three year old daughter that he simply adored. He also had a troubling side. He spent way too much time in bars on both sides of the Ohio River, nursing his addiction to alcohol. And he had a violent side. He had a hair-trigger temper, and he had been physical with both his wife and his girlfriend. His wife, Irene Zimmerman, had enough. She and Leon were in the process of getting a divorce. But in the meantime, they were both still living together in a home on Indian Run Road. There was something else going on that winter of 1982, though, Nobody could really pin down the source of it, but Leon had developed a paranoia. Those around him thought he was acting unusually nervous all the time. He had also become really overprotective of his daughter, Julie. He wouldn't let her leave the house unless he was by her side. He even stopped everyone from taking her picture. Yes, there were many sides to Leon Monser, 
but this side was new. There was one clue to this uncharacteristic behavior. In February of 82, someone left an anonymous letter in his mailbox. Now, it wasn't mailed. There was no address, no postage stamp. That meant someone had been right outside their home, slipping it into the mailbox. And it was all the more unnerving because it carried a message that used letters cut from a glossy magazine. All it said was, leave it alone or you're dead. Leon threw that letter away. Irene didn't understand the threat. She guessed as much as anyone might guess that it sounded like Leon knew something he shouldn't have known and he was being warned to forget about it. Several days after receiving that letter, now we're at February 21, 1982, Leon told Irene he was going out for the evening. He quipped that he had a hot date, but didn't say with who, where he was going, or when he intended to be back. He dressed in a tan velour shirt, blue jeans, and a blue jacket with brown stripes, and he pulled away from the house on Indian Run Road in his gray Dodge Aspen. Leon didn't come home that night. Irene wasn't concerned. Sure, he lived there, but they weren't a couple anymore. But then, the morning after, one of Leon's three employers called the house looking for him. Leon had not shown up for his shift. Two days later, Irene found Leon's car. It was idling in a ditch, its lights still on, on National Road near a place called Powerline Park. That was a really popular spot for off-roaders in the Belmont County area. At first, Irene was thrilled to see it. She told a reporter, I mean, I was happy. I was really happy because I figured maybe he was in there sleeping or something like that. But Leon was not there. The car had been abandoned. The driver's side door was open and the keys obviously still in the ignition. His coat was in the car not something he likely would have left behind willingly on a February day in Ohio. He also left his cigarettes and lighter in the car, things his family couldn't imagine him going without. The interior of the car was covered in mud. It looked like there had been a struggle. As a matter of fact, years later, when Belmont County Sheriff Fred Thompson was reviewing the case, he said it seemed to him like that was evidence of foul play. Sheriff Thompson said, sounds like someone knew he was going to be out there on this road at a certain time, and they had a surprise for him. But if there was evidence in that car, it was lost the moment police told Irene to take the car home. The Dodge was never forensically examined. In the months that followed Leon's disappearance, three people who knew him said they thought they saw him from a distance. Even Irene began to wonder if Leon was alive. For six months after her estranged husband's disappearance, she said she and her daughter constantly spotted a man in a pickup truck who appeared to be following them. And on occasion, over the next two years, she would spot a man, always in jeans and a dark hooded sweatshirt, hanging out in the shadows right outside her home. The man's face was always obscured. 
Was that Leon? Was he staying away to protect his daughter? I thought it might be him, Irene said. Julie was everything to him. So was that him wanting to see her, to know what she looked like? I don't know. Irene never called police to report the man in the truck or the man watching the house. Of course, the other theory is that it wasn't Leon, but his killer. Maybe someone making sure Irene wasn't doing something or going somewhere or communicating with someone, the same sort of thing that had gotten Leon killed. Police interviewed family and friends about who might have wanted to do Leon harm, but they insisted that in spite of his short temper, he got along well with others, even considered him a people person. I did find one story that mentioned very briefly, not long before Leon went missing, he'd had an altercation in the nearby city of Wheeling, West Virginia. There were no details about the incident, just the author noting, for the record, that there was a lot of mob activity in the area at that time. In addition to the man in the truck and the man watching from the shadows, Leon's wife, Irene, had to put up with some cruel, anonymous phone calls. In one call, a man asked if she wanted to know where Leon was. Yes, she told him. Well, his head's in a garbage bag in the river, and his arms and legs are out in the strip pits he said, referring to a nearby strip mine. But Leon Monser has never been found. In 1988, he was legally declared dead, six years after he vanished. His mother was the beneficiary on a small life insurance policy he had. She had continued to pay the premiums after he disappeared. Ryan Allar of the Belmont County Sheriff's Office said detectives have little doubt that Leon died long before a court made it official. To the frustration of those who hoped to solve this case, the Belmont Sheriff lost the case file for years. And except for his family, Leon was all but forgotten. But in 2007, more than 20 years after he vanished, his file was found, and modern-day cold case investigators decided to take another look. They made sure his dental records were added to databases that collect info about unidentified remains. And in 2015, investigators even followed a lead to Columbus, where they dug up a basement in search of his remains. He wasn't there. And frankly, it doesn't look like they are any closer to figuring out this mystery than the day Leon drove away from his home and his little girl. Belmont Deputy Alar said what it's going to take is the right person coming forward, and he's really confident that person is out there. He said, I guarantee somebody knows what happened to Leon Monser, maybe more than one person. At the very least, they could have the common courtesy to reach out and let somebody know where he is. Leon's daughter, Julie, is grown now, of course, with a daughter of her own. She told reporters she doesn't remember her father, but that hasn't made it any easier to spend her entire life not knowing his fate. She said she feels his presence from time to time. She used to think that meant he was alive, but she's come to accept that that's probably just wishful thinking. Julie said, either way, I'll be sad. If he's alive, 
I'll be sad that he left. And if something happened to him, I'll be sad that somebody took him from me. Anyone with information in this case can call the Belmont County Sheriff's Office at 740-695-7933. Any thoughts on this one, Steve? They said he had a trigger, you know, where he blew up pretty quickly and maybe there was some kind of road rage there and was driven off the road. And I don't know. I'm not sure. But um, then again, sometimes it leans to... Maybe he knew somebody who had a part in his disappearance, but it's just sad that they don't have the body. And we all we always know that, you know, that's that's part of the closure right there. And if anybody has any information, definitely, even if you think it's something very small and doesn't really mean much, anything small can lead to big things. So definitely give them a call. Fortunately, we live in a day and time when these kinds of cases are getting solved. I mean, there have been some some cases recently that have been solved with very little new evidence, but technology and time, people deciding to just come forward uh, can really make a difference. So let's hope this is one of the lucky ones. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.